Welcome to the Future of Fright, your listening destination for all things queer, new, interesting, and innovative in horror. My name is Leslie, and today we welcome back Ben Latini. And Ben, I guess you are now our political correspondent. Does that sound okay <laughs> with you? Yeah, that sounds good. And in a lot of ways, you're also our weird horror correspondent and our YouTube correspondent you're really filling like a, a particular niche here I think yeah I guess I guess we could call we could have it as like a segment that's called like is this horror <laughs> yeah. welcome to this week's segment is this horror <laughs> where we welcome back Ben Latini to find out is this horror I don't know <laughs> so today we're talking about Vic Berger who is a YouTuber, I guess you would call him, really a, I don't know, a surreal video creator. And the original video that you sent me was a collaboration between Vic Berger and Vice News, kind of weirdly enough. It was what they named a phantasmagoric odyssey into Trump's presidency. It's about an hour long. And, well, how would you describe what these videos are is there a brief um, summary of these supremely strange videos yeah so well one thing that might give us a good like window into what he's doing and where it comes from is that i heard an interview where vic Berger said that a lot of the stuff that he he's able to notice and emphasize in his videos comes out of his social anxiety <laughs> and so like being hyper aware of these weird little aspects of every um, social interaction. So you notice like he, he has a tendency to zoom in on, on awkward things or when someone's hand hits the microphone, he like adds in like a little Foley noise that makes it more obtrusive. And, that actually um, makes a lot of sense. And that kind of helps me think about what these videos are doing a little more because when you are watching some, so so in the videos we have mainly Trump, uh, but he does videos on other figures as well. And they are clips from their speeches or things that they have done that are kind of put together and, and remixed in these weird disorienting ways. And, and he like strips all of the sound from the background. And like you said, anytime they drop something or like do something that is that is out of place with this sort of clean image that they're trying to project. Uh, it's really hyper-focused in on, which is honestly the exact feeling of anxiety, right? It's the, it's the equivalent of like dropping something on the bus and assuming that it is the loudest sound anyone's ever heard and that everyone on the bus is going to turn around and look at you and hate you for it. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> So why? Maybe that's not maybe that's not the productive question. Uh, so, what do you think is worthwhile here? I mean, why do you do you like these videos, and or what do you think is worthwhile about them? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I mean, I I, th I think they're very funny, and they also have a way of sort of amplifying uh, the absurdities of of what's going on. I guess I would say that's probably the main thing that he does is you know he's his main thing he's a video editor like he he worked with uh tim heidecker from tim and eric on a youtube channel project called super deluxe 
And now he, he works with them on a podcast called Office Hours, but he kind of has that some of some of that sort of style of editing. There's a guy, DJ Doug Pound, who edited, I forget his real name, but he edited a lot of the, if not all of the Tim and Eric stuff. And he has a very distinctive style and, and Vic Burgers is a little bit different from that, but he's, he's able to, like one of the things he does is just sort of take these moments that you probably wouldn't even ever see or wouldn't even think about. And he's like, hey, look at, look at this. Yeah, he's really like using a magnifying glass on an already kind of strange phenomenon, right? Like, like I think we can all kind of agree that the Trump presidency is in itself just conceptually the idea of like a celebrity president who's who's courting a a hyper right wing base and and you know saying all of these ridiculous things that that in itself is absurd, but then these videos are are kind of making them even more absurd by focusing in on the tiny details like how often Trump licks his lips, which is a lot, <laughs> or or all of the weird background noises that get in the way, or all of the uh, weird little ticks that people have, or the repetitions that they do. So is this horror? Um, it's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I... I thought, you know, and that, that's why I thought it would be, it would be interesting is I think, I guess what made me want to explore this as horror is that I feel that, you know, he, if you look at uh, Vic Berger's YouTube channel, he's, he's covered all kinds of different people, everyone from like Tyler, the creator to Steve Harvey to um, televangelists and it felt like he was kind of trying to capture a certain underlying horror with Trump that it might be a sort of unique thing to his approach to Trump that is not not the way he approaches other public figures necessarily and so I was interested in what he was trying to do and how it could work as as like a form of horror it's it's certainly less overtly horror than the last time I was on the uh, animated videos that we talked about. Yeah, those were definitely, I think, intended to disturb and frighten audiences. What do you think these videos are trying to, are there specific feelings that they're trying to produce for viewers, particularly the Trump ones, which as you said, have more elements of horror to them than maybe some of his other works? Well, I think one thing that I can bring up that maybe I'll try to give a few examples that that sort of illustrate some of the things that I find uh, sort of horrifying. One is when he was talking early in his presidency, he was having a meal, I believe, at Mar-a-Lago with uh, President Xi of China. And he was being interviewed about it. And he really, during the interview, he really zeroes in on just how damn good the chocolate cake was that they had for dessert. And what is very, like, upsetting and weird about that, besides, you know, just the obvious, I guess, is that he's so, he's so fixated on the chocolate cake that he, he says, 
I told President Xi that we we had just bombed Iraq when actually it was Syria, you know, so it's like he's, I don't know if he told President Xi, I assume he told him Syria, but in, in recounting it, he's so interested in the chocolate cake and so disinterested in the foreign policy that, you know. Uh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, there are other moments I'm trying to think of some more specific ones, but where he's so interested in kind of the rhetoric of what he's saying, that what he's actually saying is either meaningless or it's nothing or it's totally incorrect. And and this is something that people certainly picked up on during Trump's presidency. It's certainly something that he's been criticized for, right? That he speaks in this word salad kind of way where... Yeah. It's clear that he's interested in getting in some key terms, but otherwise, if it makes sense, isn't really the point. And I guess you're right that part of the horror of that is that is the president of the United States doing that. I I mean, is that what you find particularly horrifying about it or what you think the video is trying to point out? Uh, Yeah, that's probably, yeah, one of the things. And then also, I guess I was just thinking also, He's kind of like the ultimate media president, and especially the president who is the most in tune with like uh, television that we've we've ever had. And you know, he it's his whole presidency was like this sort of postmodern production. Like you, I don't know if you remember, like before I I think this was before he announced Brett Kavanaugh as his pick for Supreme Court. He was like, on Friday, we'll uh, we'll be announcing a new Supreme Court justice. So stay Friday, tuned. Friday, and there was Friday. like a countdown. There was like a countdown timer and everything, you know. So in a way, I guess it's kind of like it was this very, very much about media management, even even though it wasn't particularly good media management. It, it was also effective to a certain extent in the sense that he you know he won you know he's able to do a lot of destructive things um and get away with them so i guess like with Vic, it's kind of like having someone else at the controls of the the media production i think in a weird way these videos are you know whether or not you you think that Trump was effective at managing the media. He was certainly, I mean, his, he was certainly effective for his base, right? At presenting a, a particular image that they really enjoyed and, and ate up and followed. And what these videos do is really strip that away in a really embarrassing way. I think they're difficult to watch because one of the feelings that they engender is, like secondhand embarrassment. But to go back to what you were saying about the horror of it, and especially that that scene that you mentioned, scene, this isn't fiction, uh, that moment that you mentioned where Trump is focusing so much on cake that he isn't thinking about being accurate, talking about who he's bombing and who is actually dying. I think you're right that part of, part of the horror here is not just Trump is president and is not just our entire governmental system has become wheel of fortune on Wednesday nights at seven. I think part of the horror is that you have 
not just Trump, but people at the helm or in control who have such a dismissive view of human life that they would rather talk about how good the chocolate cake is at the hotel that they own rather than think seriously about the people that that their policies are literally bombing in other countries, right? Yeah, and, and in relation to that, as far as the media management goes, even though he was not able to manage the media in the sense of making himself look good to those outside of his base, I think what he was able to do, which is illustrated in these these videos, it's illustrated by the, the Kofefe montage, where, you know, the the news was constantly kind of taking their eye off the ball and covering just the the asinine entertaining aspects of the presidency while meanwhile he's doing things like you know appointing dozens of federal judges you know that are going to be affecting people's lives for decades to come and do you think that these videos are doing something different than than media that was making fun of Trump for these little slip ups because in many of these clips that we get from from these Vic Berger videos, what we see are an emphasis on these minor slip ups, right? So yeah, that's true. So yeah, I, I just I just wonder, like, do you see these videos as part of the continued trajectory of the media picking at you know this the low hanging fruit of a Trump presidency. Oh, look how often he licks his lips, and look how often he misspeaks versus keeping their eye on the ball, as you said. Or is this doing something different? Yes, I think it does definitely contribute to that. And I I think his I think Vic Berger. I don't know this, but I I think his it seems to me his main goal is comedy. Once he got into video editing, tended to work with comedians and the videos tend to lean seem to lean in that direction I guess what they maybe what we could what I could say that they do is they sort of if we think that with media as in a way with with life if you take like the sociologist Irving Goffman and he had the the ideas of like front stage and backstage for social interaction and sort of institutions as well as like actual drama you know sort of a dramaturgical approach to thinking about social life and social interaction and I I think he Vic Berger is sort of able to one thing that he does is show how much of the backstage stuff is really actually in the front stage for us to see I don't know if we need him to tell us that, but he, like a lot of, a lot of the stuff that he zeroes in on feels like it's not noticed. And I think like with Trump, one of the things that I think is, is effective, I guess, I I don't know, it's, it's, it's tough because the audience that is most likely to respond to these videos doesn't really need the messages, you know, unfortunately, but I think like, one of the things that really I was thinking about a lot watching this time was the music uh, that he uses. And so especially he has like a theme song for Trump 
when whenever Trump walks to the podium, he he has this very very like chintzy sounding music, and it's like detuned. It's like sounds like it's falling apart as you listen to it. And I thought that was very sort of indicative of Trump as a person and as a excuse me as a media production where it's like gold plated with nothing of value underneath. It's like this very like almost 80s sounding like go-go kind of up with this high powered businessman kind of music. Um, but at the same time, like the way he's processed the, the sound clip emphasizes like how cheesy and stupid <laughs> it also sounds. I'm interested in thinking about what these videos are doing with Trump as like dramaturgy as like Mm -hmm. stripping away the artifice in a lot of ways which is weird because they are like these are videos that are editing clips and sounds together like they are a production in themselves right they are being created with kind of a a point or a, a vision in mind right and yet what they end up doing is really stripping away like you said, all of the all of the kind of front stage work that gets done to uphold these political figures and to make them into media figures and to set them in front of a camera and make things look like they're running smoothly. And what these videos show us is that none of this is running smoothly. Nothing is running smoothly. In fact, we're we're all in quite a lot of peril, perhaps. And even that that we're we're sort of we're seeing it in front of us, even as even as it's supposed to be hidden. It's yeah, these are these are kind of tough to talk about uh, because it is like like I said, um, they I guess they are sort of maybe preaching to the choir in a sense. Yeah, so maybe in this uh, in this episode, like the last time, I felt I felt very confident about like. I feel like I have a sense of what these um, and animations, what uh, this artist is doing and why it's, uh, why it's so worthwhile. And with, with Vic Berger, I do, I do really enjoy the work that he does, but maybe this is more of an exploratory episode where we sort of try and figure that out. Cause I'm, I don't have like a ready argument for, the significance of, of his work, you know, as entertaining as it is. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way to, to go about it because obviously, you know, I, I don't have steady answers either, but, but I find just thinking through these things aloud can be helpful. Uh, and you've mentioned the audience for these twice now, and I was thinking about them as well, because to me, parts of these videos remind me of those segments that they do on The Daily Show, where they have correspondents go out into the field and interview conservative voters who have no idea what they're talking about and are not prepared to be on camera in any way. And the goal there, of course, seems to be for white liberal viewers of The Daily Show to poke fun at these people who are so uneducated and so beneath them, right? Yeah. And this is obviously a bit different just because we're looking at politicians. So we're punching up and we're not punching down, but I do still wonder who the audience could be for this or, or who you think the audience is. I guess one thing that it does is, well, you know, like I said, I think 
I'm trying to remember the details. He was sort of discovered by, uh, I believe, by Tim Heidecker. I think originally, I'm, I'm trying to remember this. Uh, he was, I listened to an interview he did with um, that guy, DJ Doug Pound, who was um, another editor of Tim, you know, of Tim and Eric, who all now has a, like an interview podcast. But um, I think what happened was Vic Berger is a musician. Uh, he studied at Berkeley. He, he's made some really cool music. And he started editing videos because he was put, he was trying to get his music out there. And he found that it was easier to get people to listen if there was like a video to watch. So he was taking, I think, like old stock footage, like public domain stuff and just making weird videos to go along with his music and then I think somehow Tim Heidecker saw it and like wanted him to do some work like he said like Tim Heidecker thought I was a video editor so I so then I like taught myself a bunch more within like 48 hours and kind of because he was he was working in music therapy for like close to a decade and then kind of fell into this editing and so so anyway I guess this is all a roundabout way of saying that I think the audience I guess is like the kind of people that would watch like Tim and Eric you know because that's chances are that's how they would at least first discover it I think I heard about the audience right yeah yeah I actually heard about him through the podcast Chapo Trap House which is like a very famous like leftist political podcast with some sort of comedy leanings, but but I wouldn't necessarily call these videos funny. At least not the Trump ones. There are certainly maybe funny moments where he's doing something overtly ridiculous, and you can't help but maybe note the absurdity of it. But even absurdism isn't necessarily funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's something really disorienting about these videos and maybe even like exhausting I felt tired after watching a long portion of these um it was kind of like sensory overload he uses a lot of air horns and a lot of different clips (laughs) edited together so I'm interested in the weird intersection here which which also happened I think last time that you were on where we were kind of talking about the sort of sister approaches of comedy and horror when it comes to yeah. political commentary and how horror is is often underutilized um but also how much overlap there seems to be in these with comedy and horror together yeah yeah and I, I guess that's probably what initially drew me to wanting to do this episode is to try and sort of wrestle with that idea contextually I would I would say that these ostensibly are supposed to be comedy just because of where they're coming from and everything but yeah I guess you know you're right like a, a lot of the time they don't feel like comedy they don't necessarily feel funny Berger does kind of work with an interesting palette of of emotions too like you know he he, he pulls in a lot of like pathos and a lot of sort of anxiety and unease and like during um, footage, when he's showing the footage of the inauguration, the music is this like sometimes like a screeching and sometimes like a low rumble. 
that just gives such a, um, a sense of unease. And it almost, it reminded me, I remember reading that so, about a similar use of music in the uh, Gaspar Noé film, Irreversible, in which like a, a rape scene is accompanied by like this sort of low rumbling music. And supposedly, if you saw it in the theater, it actually, you know, the, the um, frequencies and everything supposedly had the possibility to make people feel sort of physically sick. I don't know if that's true or if that was like an urban legend, but... But still, what a fascinating... I mean, obviously, we think about sound and we think about music when it comes to horror because, as all seasoned horror fans know, when you hear shrill violins, you're about to get a jump scare, right? When you hear sudden silence, which is never true silence, you know, we can talk about how in these videos, Vic Berger uses actual silence and not just ambient noise like we hear in, in movies. But, you know, we think about sound and we think about music when it comes to horror because those are our cues for how to feel. But we don't often pay them a lot of attention, like you said, when we're thinking about what's in the background and what's in the foreground we might notice them vaguely, but we're not often focusing on them. Whereas here in these videos, I mean, the sound cues are so integral to yeah. what you're feeling in any given moment. And yeah. you're right that I think the feelings that the sound cues are producing are feelings of discomfort, unease, anxiety, disorientation. And those are all horror feelings, right? Yeah, like like there's a scene where It was an early press conference that he did after, you know, not too long after the inauguration, where he was really castigating the media for being fake news and everything. And he he starts, uh, I think Jim Acosta from CNN asks him a question, and then he starts talking about tone and the music. It's this very, it reminded me of some of the scores you would hear in a David Lynch film where in like a what's like somewhat of a poignant moment but it sounds like melancholy poignant music that somehow and I can't put my finger on why but somehow has an edge to it that is very uncomfortable and sort of challenging that sadness and I, I don't know I guess it's like what is maybe what it's doing is like the pathos and poignancy of it is that's what he feels but then the the edge of unease that's that's at the center of that musical cue is all that's kind of what everyone else feels when they're watching it yeah this disconnect between you're right that it's really laying bare the mechanics of here is what this person, you know, or narrator or whatever, here's what Trump and his media team want to make the audience feel. And then this undertone is, but here's what we're actually feeling and they do not match up. And that is awkward and terrible. The music to me reminded me, this will sound like a bit, but the music reminded me of like playing a funeral dirge through like a busted calliope at a fair. Like it's just Mm -hmm. off in some way. And I think mentioning David Lynch is such a perfect point because this, these, these videos really reminded me of, of David Lynch, of his work, Mulholland Drive and all of that. 
it also really reminded me of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And in the description of the Vice video, where Vice paired up with with Vic Berger, uh, they called him a surrealist video artist. And so maybe we should talk about surrealism as well. So this, obviously in horror, we have things like Mulholland Drive, like Suspiria, like Neon Demon, like Donnie Darko, even aspects of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. We have surrealist horror here and there. It's not as incorporated into horror as as perhaps it could be and the point of surrealism is I think it got defined in like the 1920s is connecting the conscious and the unconscious modes of experience right so it's this is for obviously you know this is mostly for listeners who might not know Um, so it's merging our experience of reality or what we think of as reality with dream with imagination with pattern recognition with all of these these things and kind of pulling them together the real the unreal are all sort of sort of meshed up so do you think of these videos as surrealist that's interesting um that wouldn't be my first thought to categorize them and i think it's because usually i i would i imagine surrealism to have an element of the impossible about it like something that is um and i i I mean i suppose you know it doesn't surrealism doesn't have to be this way but i kind of because they're everything that he's using really happened and is has this this very strong tie to like concrete reality i probably would lean away from uh surrealism and categorizing it yeah I get I I can kind of I can see the impulse yeah I don't know I'm I'm interested in in thinking about it as as surrealist just because when you're watching as a viewer or at least when I was watching it some of the things that struck me like of course these clips and the material in them actually happened these quotes really were spoken by Trump etc but as you're watching the screen will tilt or Mm -hmm. it will zoom in on a detail suddenly and and you know there will be the noises or the air horns or the or the weird background ambiance coming through and that I think is making I think that is maybe doing a good job of merging the reality of this thing that did happen objectively and the unreality of how you experience it watching it which is I assume it's it's kind of like having someone talk to you while you're while you're high where you you're really standing apart from one another and you're really having a conversation but at the same time all you can think about is is my arm in a weird place do I look weird do I look insane why are they sweating so much why am I sweating so much where are we right now is that a cricket in the background is that a car I don't know where am I like that is to me, maybe not the strict definition of surrealism as we think of it in art and things like that, but but to me that felt very surrealist. The merging of like the the inner thoughts and experience of the viewer with what actually happened. Yeah, and I, I definitely think there is like a, a slight tinge of sort of uh, maybe like psychedelic. Uh, feeling to it where it is like like you said earlier like disorienting almost sort of feels a bit hallucinatory at times yeah and it's 
all aspects of it begin to feel horrifying. So much like maybe the Amon animations that we talked about last time, where you have the horror of what they're saying mixed with the kind of animated body horror that you get. Here also, I think there's a mixture of the very real and honestly quite overwhelming horror of the president of the United States not knowing basic things about not just policy, but anything, daily life. There's that, which is overwhelmingly frightening, mixed with the horror of the crowds in the background, the noises that are suddenly popping up, him licking his lips over and over. After a while, I think there is a kind of sensory overload where I just feel kind of about the whole thing. Yeah, when I when I sent you the second video, I kind of said like, if you can handle a little more, there is this because I know it is like, especially one of the things that really got to me on this one was um, the I've always it's always driven me crazy the way you can't you can't pronounce the word million or billion. He says like billions, and um, so the, in in the Vice uh, video. There's a segment, it must be like 10 minutes long, where it's just rhythmically cut of him saying like billions and billions and billions and billions. And it he matches up the, the different edits, like the different um, clips so that it has a certain rhythm and then it will change rhythm for a good like one or two minutes and then change back and it's like shifting through this like very musical hypnotic um, and like you keep one wondering like surely this is almost done but it feels like the kind of thing that they would play in a CIA holding cell honestly yeah. <laughs> to to make you lose your mind and and after a while of watching these you do kind of feel like you're descending into madness which is also a a brand of horror right that yeah. that not only is the and and that might be the most frightening thing about these videos, perhaps, is that on the one hand, when you see Trump stripped away as what he really is, which is not good, and then you also see his followers presumably seeing the same things you are and interpreting it so differently. I mean, you feel crazy right you feel totally gaslit like the reality that you're experiencing is distinctly different from the reality that conservatives are experiencing and then on the other hand by the end of these videos the the camera angles and the noises and the clips being edited together have all changed and shuffled so many times that i think you start to doubt your own perspective on things there there is a kind of I don't know, like Stephen King's 1408 or, or something, right? Where like, or The Shining, where you're watching the video and you're like, on, on one level, you're like, these people are, either these people are insane or I'm insane because, because our realities aren't matching up. And then by the end, you're like, what even is reality? I guess it's just 20 minutes of Trump mispronouncing billions because I don't even know what's happening anymore. Yeah, yeah. And in a way, like, you know, they're, people have pointed out how the Trump presidency was this sort of weird mainstreaming of the sort of what in, in like academia and certain other circles 
you know, has sort of been the the basic way of, of thinking of postmodernism. You know, the sort of radical uh, subjectivity and, you know, the sort of um, abandonment of the idea of truth. And in a way, it was like the, the sort of democratic and, and sort of main, you know, certain, certain aspects of the media establishment took on the role of that the, that the Republicans took on in the early 90s culture wars, where they were like the crusaders for quote unquote, like objective truth and everything in the face of like deconstruction and multiculturalism invading the academy. Yeah, and I think, well, I know for a fact that a lot of people in the academy are ill-equipped to combat that dynamic between like post-structuralism and, and objective truth. And people outside of the academy aren't equipped to deal with it at all. There, there are really only two modes of, of existing. There either is, there is a right and wrong, there is a truth, there is an objective view of things, here are the facts, or there is really where we're heading now or where we have been for a while where everything is subjective, everything is open to interpretation. And if that's true, then nothing is true and everything is true and everyone's experience is valid and, and they're all equally valid, right? I can say that vaccines are recommended and are good and everyone should get them whenever they're available. And someone else can just say, no, I don't think so. And that's just as valid a rebuttal these days, it seems. So yeah, I think I think you're right that part of the horror of these videos is laying that bare for people, I guess, is really laying bare the inadequacies of, of the public to deal with the fact that we are living in multiple realities, it seems, that, that we are all uh, dealing with subjectivity and our different perspectives and what happens when you have to combat people or debate with people whose response is just no I don't think so <laughs> that's just not true yeah it kind of reminds me of that um that common um argument that is made in defense of a sort of absolutist approach to free speech which is that um you know people will warn that um you know if you restrict speech eventually people that you don't agree with are going to have the power to restrict your speech and it feels kind of similar in the sense of like we are all this time was spent um undermining the idea of re of objective reality for better or worse you know i'm not you know just sort of dismissing that idea but it's like you know eventually the people that were were sort of you know eventually it's not going to be just academic deconstructionists that get a hold of that idea right yeah i mean i think it's i, I do think it's valuable to to do the academic work of you know post structuralism and, and deconstruction because i think there are worthwhile moments where we can say things like language is made up money is made up gender is made up race is made up like i think those things are worthwhile, but you're right that what ends up happening is the, the sort of opposing side sees that and says, oh, cool. Well, if everything's made up, then fuck it. <laughs> Vaccines are full of 5G trackers and the virus was constructed by China. And like, right, reality be starts to sort of pull apart in places where 
maybe we didn't intend it to. Yeah. So when thinking about horror, we have, or, or as Trump calls it in this video, Hara, um, <laughs> <laughs> I watched that clip 10 times, I watched him pronounce that word 10 times, and I think I want to make it like an intro to the show or something. Yeah. But when thinking about horror and when thinking about its capacity for political commentary, do you think we will see videos like this continue now that Biden is president? Or yeah. do you think that this is a Trump-specific thing? Because so far, the ones that we've looked at, there's been Trump, and then even the Amon animations videos, which are still ongoing and still being made, are still focusing a lot on, on Trump, on Ben Shapiro, on Jordan Peterson, on those kinds of figures. It's a good question. I, I have definitely seen, there have been a few people at, who seem to be coming from, from the right basically making videos using the the famous corn pop speech uh from joe biden if if people don't know that it's it's about he he told a story when he was um i don't know a, a, a maybe 18 or 19 something like that he he was a lifeguard in in a an inner city uh swimming pool and he he told a story about a run with Corn Pop, who, quote, was a, he was a bad dude, and he ran a bunch of bad boys, and, like, yeah, so, I, I mean, I think the potential is definitely there, like, you know, Biden, Biden is, is also quite ridiculous, and so I guess it remains to be seen. I think the, the, um, the direction it's, it's been taken so far that I've seen, like, on the late-night comedy, it's kind of interesting. The main joke about Biden so far has been he's old, which Trump was also old, but I guess there were more pressing matters. <laughs> but, but, you know, like, I really do enjoy some of the, the jokes about just, like, putting words into Biden's mouth about, like, old-timey uh, stuff. Like, I think Jimmy Fallon had him saying that now that he's president, doctors are going to start wearing those head mirrors again on the strap that goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like my favorite line from the um, the <laughs> the corn pop speech, he says, um, "You know how you would uh, you'd take a razor and leave it in a rain barrel overnight so it get rusty." He doesn't say that. <laughs> he can't he say does. that. That's not yeah. a real thing. <laughs> Yeah. I love, you know, and he's not that old, but he does seem like a man who's just been transported from 1825 yeah. in so many ways. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I remember when my granddad fought in the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, let's talk about absurdism, right? Because that's really what all of these moments are, right? When we're talking about whether we're talking about Trump hyper fixating on chocolate cake instead of actual real world policy or whether we're talking about joe biden being grandpappy from three wars ago we're talking about pointing out the absurdity of what's happening right yeah so i think last time we talked about like existential horror like the horror of recognizing that you are a a minuscule dot in a huge universe that ultimately 
is full of people who seek your destruction. And I think that's maybe part of this as well. It's not just the horror of recognizing that the people in charge don't know what they're doing or are severely inept. I think it's something more like absurdism where, and, and surrealism maybe all at once. You know, if surrealism says your reality is not your reality and the things that you experience are not true and factual and can at any time be invaded by, you know, these other different experiences that, that totally disorient you. And if absurdism says that life is absurd and that there is no meaning to human life and that there is no meaning to existence, and that there is no meaning to the universe in which we live. I mean, I think those are both horror, even if we don't name them as such, right? Yeah. Which I yeah, think definitely. might make a good argument for is this horror maybe i think yeah yeah i mean definitely when you the um the vice video does some things that are i don't think are as common in um this might have been you know it says it's a collaboration between him and vice i don't know exactly the mechanics of that if there was another editor working with him because it does seem like there are there are a lot of montages um, in a way that I don't really associate as much with his style of like look how how many times this certain phrase is being said and you know cer- certain aspects of of that that were there were two at least that were very horrifying um, one was about uh, the good old days quote unquote. And they would have different clips of Trump talking about how things were in the good old days. And they would have a list starting to populate the screen. And he said things like, in the old days, we had great surveillance going on in and around mosques. Or he said, like, you could just lock people away in mental institutions, even if they they haven't done anything wrong, but just, you know just in case. Um, And like he talks about violence against protesters and it was, there was a a black woman who was protesting at one of his rallies. And when she's taken out, out of there by security, he says like in the old days, quote, you'd rough them up and they wouldn't want to protest anymore. So it's like, it's unclear if he's talking just about protesters or about black Americans but, you know, like the the hoses and police dogs of the civil rights era come to mind. Yeah, that's um, a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty singular Venn diagram there, probably yeah. for him. Um, and then once that whole list fills up the screen of what he thinks came from the good old days, then there's a clip where he says, like, and we're going to go back to the good old days. Oh, yeah, that is, I mean, it's that like, is horror, right? Yeah, it's very um, dystopian. And again, I think it's horrifying to have him saying the quiet part out loud and having people cheer about it, right? Yeah. Like, these aren't just dog whistles anymore. These are right. air horns, and and people are loving it, and that's frightening as well. Yeah, and then an- another one that he... The other one that I was thinking about was how much he talks about genes. That was in the Vice. There was a um, there was a montage about you know 
in other words, genetics. Yeah, I a, for a second I blanked and I was like, jeans. He really loves yeah. denim. But no, yeah. you are talking about like, uh, yeah, white supremacist. Yeah. They've got these apple bottom jeans, folks. <laughs> and when you pair them with like the boots with believe. the fur, <laughs> oh, incredible, wonderful. Best the best jeans. We love those jeans, don't we, folks? <laughs> You're hearing it more and more. You really a are. A man, a big man, big bear of a man, looked better than Tom Cruise. He came up to me with tears in his eyes, telling me, saying, thank you, sir, for bringing, bringing those jeans back to America. I, I hate it. Honestly, we need to do a, I don't even know how this would fit into the thesis of the podcast, but we need to do an impression section. We need to just have, have you on board for, for like Trump impressions and and Ben Shapiro because you do a stellar Ben Shapiro as well. Yeah, and he like so to get you know uh, on a much less light note. Yeah, let's talk white supremacy. Yeah, so he said he said this this is a quote from it. A man named Henry Ford, good bloodlines if you believe in that stuff. He's got good blood, and it's like of course Henry Ford was like very famously anti-Semitic and it, it really it made me think about I was reading a book recently by a philosopher named Lawrence Bloom about racism and he was talking about how the history of the concept of race racism and he pointed out you know we don't think about it that often but it's an it's referred to as an ism you know in the same way as like socialism or capitalism because it was, you know, it, it's like a, an ideology, a whole belief system. And apparently, you know, he, he traces it to, I guess, social science, social scientists studying, like trying to come to grips with Nazi ideology. And, you know, some of the stuff that the way Trump talks, you know, he, he from his father, he got something that he calls like the racehorse theory where he just believes that, you know, it's like that people are like racehorses where the, the better genetics. He even, you, I mean, uh, you can just call it eugenics, but. Yeah, he literally says, I'm proud to have that German blood. Oh, God. Yeah, like he's mm. so close, like he's right there. And I don't know if he, if it is dog whistling or maybe we have to call it dog bullhorning. In this right, case. right. But, but, or if he just doesn't even know. It, it really, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it could just be him repeating rhetoric that he's hearing from around him that other people are using, and he's not really even thinking about it hard enough to to decipher what it is. But there's no doubt that it's intentional, and there's no doubt that that his audience certainly knows knows yeah. what he's talking about. But this is again, I think, another hmm. Well, I don't know. Is this another aspect of horror? Obviously thinking about eugenics is horrific and thinking about an ideology of racism that believes you know I think when we talk about racism a lot of things get lumped into it but here we're not just talking about everyday discrimination on the basis of right. difference of color or or things like that we're talking about 
someone who believes in the biological, someone who believes in like phrenology, right? Or the biological yeah. difference yeah. of, oh, they have good blood or bad blood, right? That there are yeah. certain sets of people who shouldn't breed like that. That is a very specific type of racism, right? Um, yeah, and he's, you know, you can get clues further to his thinking where he said that his his uncle was a was a um, renowned scientist at MIT and so he he has used that to claim that he has a good mind for science because it's like in in his blood or something you know and this might be a divergence from from what we've been talking about and this may not be overly relevant but horror itself as a genre has a bad eugenics problem i mean it has a bad race problem obviously it has bad gender problems as well but when we think about movies like the hills have eyes the texas chainsaw massacre when we think about movies about uh deformity about disability uh where where villains or antagonists are part of families where like it's suggested that there's been inbreeding i think there really is a a subtle undercurrent in the horror genre that we still haven't picked out yet. I mean, a lot of horror is set in mental asylums, right? And there is a sense that there is bad blood, right? There are like bad lines that shouldn't be breeding or reproducing um, and that someone's outward appearance is an indicator of their inward morality. I mean, that's a huge thing in horror that we don't really deal with. But I think the two kind of have a lot in common. I mean, that's that's eugenics, right? Isn't it? Yeah, there's an interesting um, horror film called It's Alive. It's a Larry Cohen film. And it's he he's a guy who would take sort of trashy, sleazy ideas for horror films and then kind of inject a bit of complexity into the writing in some interesting ways so it's about a baby that is a monster that's killing people but a lot of the film focuses on the experience of the baby's parents and like how they're dealing with you know the the fact that they they love their baby and it's it you know it's part of their family yeah i mean in this idea of yeah even there i guess the you know, I'd have to watch it again to really unpack if there's like a eugenic sort of aspect to it. I think ultimately there is. I think it's like they're wrestling with the idea that their child is is quote unquote a monster. Right. And the, I mean, even the idea that someone can be monstrous from birth, right? Yeah. Oh, we expected a baby and instead we got this mutant monster. Like, well, how do we deal with that, right? Yeah, so I think, I don't know, this this doesn't necessarily have to do with the videos that we've been talking about, but I, I certainly think that they're, that we're right to notice a lot of overlap between the kinds of things that we're thinking about in political commentary and the kinds of things that we're thinking about when we're dealing with horror media. They are, they are always in conversation with one another. Yeah. So what else should we mention about these videos or, or other things that... Uh, you feel like listeners should know about them or should be thinking about when they're dealing with them? I think one thing that that was interesting, like with the Vice video, is just the sense of 
sort of a, of a story being told through these sort of disparate clips that are being brought together. You know, it's it starts with with Donald Trump at uh, I think it was the press correspondence dinner, and there he's being roasted by like uh, Seth Meyers and then by uh, Barack Obama, and Obama really takes him apart, and everyone is is cracking up, and and uh, Trump. One of the things, this was one of the scenes, when I saw this scene for the first time, this is when I thought of it as like, um, this could be horror, because there's all this like laughter and merriment going on around him. And the proper thing to do, uh, you know, you would think as a public figure, being sort of, you know, roasted in, in what's supposed to be a good natured way probably everybody's the brunt of some jokes would be to sort of laugh along. And uh, Trump sits there with such complete stillness that it, it seems almost inhuman and uncanny. And you just, I think I've heard some people say that they thought that was like the moment where he really became determined to become president. I don't, I don't necessarily think that's literally true, but it makes a lot of narrative sense. And the, there's, this is, a, it's a very Lynchian scene, the way the laughter is portrayed and sort of amplified and it becomes very surreal. And like Obama's voice is echoing over and over saying like, I don't think he can become president. And it almost reminded me of those scenes you would see in like very old movies or cartoons where like someone's trying to sleep and they're imagining the faces of people they know like floating over their head like hectoring them and it's like echoing and they're like tossing and turning and then it cuts very abruptly to Trump just in the sea of old white men um, and he's like I'm president and then it's their turn uh, to laugh. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like what launches us into this whole downward spiral. Odyssey, of, as they say. Yeah, I'm I'm convinced fully that this is horror, and I'm convinced fully. I think that horror is a necessary and totally underused mechanism for this kind of political commentary and this kind of political work. Um, I think that it's certainly more depressing than taking a comedic view of it because you don't leave these videos feeling good but you don't necessarily leave horror movies feeling good either but I think they do necessary work of forcing us to face these things that otherwise I think we're tempted to kind of laugh off or ignore or play yeah. down oh it's not as bad as you know the doomsayers are, are saying that it is and I think these videos do something really special in bringing together all of these different elements of comedy, of horror, of absurdism, of surrealism, of everyday reality and, and clips from that reality and making the viewer confront this stuff outright. Yeah, and I guess it's, I imagine if we really studied the these long form videos, which are basically made up of, he would, um, especially the second one that I sent you, which is not from Vice, he would make short form videos on a regular basis as things were happening. And then he's, he has sort of 
what happened was that the uh, Super Deluxe, the channel that I believe Jim Heidecker was running, that Vic Berger was working for, they closed closed it down, and so all of all of his videos, excuse me, were going to be no longer available. So he made these like montage or these um, sort of compilations, and has edited them together in with a certain continuity I think and I imagine if we really looked at them closely and, and as a as a whole we would see probably a certain thesis about like the Trump presidency I think you're right I think that you know we've been talking about them as clips edited together but you're right this is a movie it is a long form like film that we're that we're really taking in and it has a narrative and it has a thesis and it is driving towards a point and there is a reason why this person who is certainly adept at editing has edited it to be in the uh, order that it is and in the way that it is I think you're absolutely right that that maybe we shouldn't be talking about these as videos but maybe as like short films yeah yeah, of course, ed- editing is about selection. And so, you know, out of all the possible footage that was available to him, these are the selections that, that he made. Yeah, and that there's a point underneath all of that that he wants audiences to leave with, a point beyond just the feelings of despair and disorientation that we've highlighted here. Hmm. So, well, I'm interested to see what you, I'm assuming you'll be back on the podcast yeah. i hope you'll be back we have on the to podcast. at least make it a trilogy absolutely you have to you can't just have a sequel um <laughs> thank you so so much for coming back oh by thanks the way. for having me and thanks. i can't wait to see what you do next time and honestly what's fascinating to me is that you know so much about like niche horror like you know italian horror so well and you know like 70s and 80s slashers so well and you really are a horror aficionado and yet the <laughs> the stuff that you bring here to the podcast are these like weird political <laughs> youtube videos i find that fascinating that you're like oh horror know that fuck that let's talk about the weird stuff which is great yeah which is exactly yeah, it's what fun it to be. yeah try to explore something that we're still trying to wrap our heads around yeah and i like the idea of calling your segment is this horror? Yeah. (laughs) We can just keep bringing things on. Um, So thank you so much, Ben. And thanks for having me. Yeah. You can follow Ben, of course, at BenLatini1 on Twitter. Uh, Mm. Still haven't, still haven't hunted down the one true Ben Latini on Twitter, have you? And taken his, his handle one day. Yeah. I think it, I, I think I did look the guy up and I think I could be wrong. I, I, I hope I'm wrong because this doesn't make sense. But I think I saw that the Ben Latini might not even be his name. No. Like, there's like a different name listed in the description or something. I mean, first, last, put him on blast. Let's dox this fool. Let's get that Twitter <laughs> handle. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember what it was. So wow. he, he gets to live another day. But... All right. Well, until next time, Ben Latini. We're yeah, coming for your, your ass. Real name. <laughs> if that is your real name. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
Oh, God. Well, thank you all for spending time with us today on The Future of Fright. If you'd like to contribute to the show with suggestions or as a potential guest spurt, or if you'd like to join our new crusade to take down Ben Latini uh, on Twitter, please comment or message. You can always follow us on Twitter at Future Fright. And until next week, stay scared. <laughs>